Hi, everyone. Welcome to this edition of Royal Lions Radio. I'm your host, Bill DeFilippo, joined tonight by my co-host, Matt DeBear. Matt, what's going on? I am wallowing in the misery of being a Browns fan, living in Detroit, and whatever you'd call those two football performances this afternoon. Y- yeah, I, um, I-, I only caught a little bit of the end of the uh, Lions game. And I missed the entire implosion. I just saw the final touchdown in the two-point conversion regulation. Then I missed all of the Browns game because I live in Jets-Bills territory. And that was mm-hmm. that, that was who wanted to not – like. It, it was basically a battle for who could lose the game more rather than who could win it more. And it was fun. Uh, I highly recommend that no one watch a sing- go back and watch a single second of that game because it was real bad. Um, but if you would like to watch a football game that was decidedly not bad, if you want to watch 30 minutes of a football game that was decidedly not bad, uh, Penn State and Buffalo played over the weekend, and our beloved Nittany Lions came out on top 45-13. to uh, Looked a little dicey there. Buffalo scored a touchdown right at the end of the first half uh, to go into the locker room up 10-7, to but Penn State really poured it on over the game's final half hour. Sean Clifford, a bit of a coming out party for him, 16 for 22, 279 passing yards and four touchdowns. He was also the team's leading rusher uh, on the strength of a f- one f- big 58-yard run. He ended 11 carries. 51 yards in all. Jahan Dotson and Pat Fryermuth really carry the passing attack. Both had a pair of scores. Dotson, four receptions, 109 yards. Fryermuth, eight receptions, 99 yards. And kind of the big thing that sparked everything was 36 yard in the second half, a 36-yard pick six by John Reed. Uh, Matt, you hear me talk about all that stuff, and it sounds like a good game, but uh, I kind of want to start with just general thoughts on this game against Buffalo, and while all that sounds really good, for 45 uh, points scored, 13 points allowed, uh, didn't allow a touchdown in the second half, four pass touchdowns, all that, it wasn't quite as rosy as it kind of sounds like it could be. Yeah, it was, and you kind of alluded to it there as on your very uh, savvy segue from NFL whatever to, to the college football Saturday, but um, I wrote about this on Sunday for the site and it was certainly a tale of two halves, but kind of what I've settled on this with, you know, more or less a day to, to digest it and kind of figure out what, what I thought about it is this was kind of a, a needed test um, for a team that hadn't really faced any adversity. And yeah, we're just two games into the year and there's you know plenty of football to come and, and bigger tests down the road. But for a team that really didn't face any sort of resistance in week one against Idaho. Um, it looked an awful lot like a young team that thought they were the greatest team on the planet. And, you know, they were going to walk through another team that they were just more talented for, and they didn't talented then and didn't really have to work for it. And college football has a weird way of, of kind of knocking you back to earth very quickly. Um, very well-coached Buffalo team came in with a great game plan. Um, we'll talk about this a little bit more with some of the specific thoughts, but I thought they were really well-prepared for the the RPO read option offense. Um, I thought they really were aggressive in attacking Penn State's defense. Um, a lot of times you'll see a team that's overmatched like that come in and almost have a little bit of stage fright against 
you know, a, an all-American led defense, 105,000 fans, yada, yada, yada. And they really weren't. Um, and I also was really impressed too with Buffalo's quarterback. I don't think I, either of us really expected him to come out and throw the ball nearly as well as he did after throwing the ball just 10 times in their, their first game against Robert Morris. So, um, I think it was a, a necessary wake up call for a team that, um, by all accounts on Wednesday with the, um, the, the open practice session wasn't really terribly focused based on the amount of conditioning work and other things that, that they were going through when the media was there and, and that James Franklin alluded to. So, um, Certainly, you don't want to go through it through a first half like that because against a better team, you're going to find yourself in a bigger hole. Um, but I think the optimist in me sees so many things, so many positives to take away because of how they responded with so many young players in key spots. Yeah, our our, our friend uh, Audrey Snyder over at the Athletic tweeted after the game something James Franklin said, which was Franklin mentioned PSU taking until the half to make adjustments slash corrections. Happens with a young team mentions they need to realize they can't have the first half like this against a lot of other opponents. And you and I, you know, we're not in the locker room, so we don't want to sound too hot takey here. But I think it was kind of evident to anyone who watched that game that Penn State seemed a little bit surprised that when Buffalo stepped onto the field, they weren't scared and they weren't going to take this punch in the mouth from a top. 15 team in one of the more one of the most hostile home environments in all of college football especially under the lights and buffalo we really can't give them enough credit they put a scare into penn state that you know for how pitt's a power five team so you expect them to push against penn state push penn state a little bit next week uh maryland has started that you're really strong you expect them to probably push penn state a little bit Penn State wasn't expecting Buffalo to do much of it. I don't think Penn State was expecting Buffalo to do nearly as much as they did in that first half, which is what makes this such a good test. When it's coming out of left field like this, and it's something that you have to adjust to in the way that Penn State had to adjust to this, I think that's something really good for them. And it was certainly a bit hairy in that first half. Um, that one drive that Buffalo had... Uh, that I believe, yeah, it ended in a field goal, 19 plays, 69 yards, 8 minutes and 34 seconds. Was It was art. And it, it was just a really, really good performance by Buffalo that could not, I don't know if anyone really could have seen it coming to the extent that it did. And I think that's something that is going to help this team down the road. And I think the way to break this game down, Matt, is to kind of break it down into a first half and a second half. What went wrong in the first half and what changed in the second half uh, with those adjustments that Franklin alluded to. So beyond just the kind of sense of complacency that you and I and I think a lot of Penn State fans would agree occurred during that first half, what went wrong for the Nittany Lions that saw them go into the locker room down 10-7? Well, I think I'll, I'll break it down on offense and defense. And I think on the offensive side, um, and I have to go back and watch a little bit closer, but um, as I, again, have had some, some time to think about this and, and go work off my memory a little bit, I think Buffalo had a really solid game plan to really attack the running game and really make that, that read option for a young quarterback who's still learning to make that read consistently, um, make that difficult on Sean Clifford. And you saw it um, both when he kept the ball and when he, he made the handoff to whoever was lined up in the backfield with him. 
and you saw a lot of guys, linebackers and, and safeties, really attacking downhill towards the line of scrimmage against the run, and clearly they were caught off guard. And we'll talk about it with, with what went right in the second half, but I think that was probably the biggest adjustment that they needed to make on, on the offensive side was reacting to what Buffalo was doing. So I'd, it's really hard when you're playing a team that has so many new faces, like we talked about last week with Buffalo, um, losing so many guys both to the NFL and, and to transfers. It's really hard when they've got so many new new faces playing and you only have one game of tape to go off of. You don't really know what to expect, and I think it becomes really easy, especially for a team like that that is really well coached, to throw some things at you that you're not expecting. And like James Franklin alluded to, it's hard to, for the young team, make those adjustments on the fly on the sideline. Um, so I think they were just kind of schematically surprised by what they faced defensively and with an inexperienced quarterback being so important to how the offense runs from a, an RPO standpoint, it made it made it even more difficult um, to kind of get their, their bearings straight. On the defensive side, I don't know if there was any, you know, game plan that, that Buffalo threw out, and they certainly threw more than I expected. Um, and with a redshirt freshman, I was, like I said, really impressed with the way he performed. Um, but I think it was just, you know, not being ready to play. And I know we said we're not going to use complacency as a, as a, a, a justification or as a reasoning for, for what went wrong. But I really think on defense, when you, you have the talent that Penn State does, that other than Buffalo going to the air a little bit more than they probably anticipated, um, I just don't think they were, were ready to go from the start. And there were adjustments that James Franklin talked about making again, um, kind of similar to the pit game last year where Pitt was really able to carve him up at the run game in the first half and then mm-hmm. did nothing in the second half. I think mm-hmm. you and I might've even tossed that back and forth during the game. That, that was, I'm sorry to interrupt, but that was the game that I was going to point to as it reminded me a lot of that one where Penn state, the opening game, obviously between last year and this year could not have been more different. Appalachian state pushing them to overtime and, it, you know, just, Instant classic, all that stuff. Idaho blowout. You could tell that for the first half against Pitt last year and against Penn and against Buffalo this year, Penn State was still thinking a bit about what happened in the last game, whether it was a good or a bad thing. And they went up against an opponent that wanted to beat them into the trenches, that wanted to run the football, that wanted to keep Penn State from having the football. And it let you know last year, Penn State went to the locker room up fourteen to six. I believe that uh, final touchdown came late in the first half. This time year they went into the locker room down ten to seven, and then the switch flips in the second half. So uh, apologies for interrupting you there, but I wanted that. That was a thought that I knew I was going to take. Uh, I, I knew I had to get out before it, uh, but before you stole the entire thing for me. So no, no take problem. That, and take I, that I think I think the the other thing on defense, and I really think it couldn't have worked out better from a a long term program building standpoint is they had a lot of guys playing the first half and a lot of guys really played in the second half too. You saw a lot of rotation at linebacker at defensive line at safety, um, even at cornerback. I think Donovan Johnson got beat on the, on the long ball that set up the, I don't remember if it was the field goal or the touchdown for Buffalo in the first half, but lots of guys getting lots of experience. Wasn't that Keaton Ellis? Uh, I 
Or we I think, think it was number play. three because there was. I think one, it was Johnson. There was one where on like a third down, someone got behind Keaton Ellis, and they were able to get a first down off of that. Play. Yeah, and the one I'm thinking of is Johnson really played it well. The guy just made a nice play to hold onto the ball. Johnson really couldn't have done anything more than he did. But um, I think they they've gone into these these first two games, and I'll be curious to see how it progresses going forward, especially with another step up in 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 talent from top to bottom and pit. And then a Maryland game that's going to, um, that suddenly looks a lot more interesting than it did uh, a week ago. Um, they've really committed to getting a lot of guys reps in these first two games. And I think getting a lot of those guys into a game where the outcome was in doubt to some degree is going to play dividends, not this year, maybe not even next year, but down the road, when some of those young guys that got meaningful snaps in the first half and early in the second half yesterday have, have some of that experience to, to go back on when they're the guy that's getting 75, 80% of the snaps in the Ohio state game in, in 2021. So it's, it's frustrating in the moment, but I think when you have the, the talent advantage that Penn state did and the confidence that you're going to, to write the ship, getting those kind of snaps and that kind of experience for so many guys is invaluable. But I think that does explain some of the, this first half struggles as they just really couldn't find that level of, of cohesion because of the rotation that was going on. Yeah. And think over the last, however many years, uh, from an extent, uh, during the first couple of years of the James Franklin era, when John Donovan was in town to the Joe Moorhead era, to now the Ronnie era of the Penn state offense, how much of Penn State's success is based around kind of two things. One, the ability to break big plays. And two, the ability to get into some kind of a rhythm. Those things just, they, they weren't there in the first half. And of course, the one big play that they were able to pull during the first half, uh, well, I don't want to say that because uh, Sean Clifford had one nice pass to KJ Hamler for 18 yards, as I'm looking here. But their one really big play was Sean Clifford to John Dotson for 28 yards at a touchdown. Like That is just what Penn State's offense does. And Buffalo, I thought, did a really good job, whether it was keeping Penn State from being able to run the ball, which I don't know if that was just kind of a general schematic thing that Penn State wanted to do, only running it 24 times uh, on the evening, or with, I think, 11 of the... Yeah, 11 of those were by Sean Clifford, so... Six carries by Journey Brown, three by Ricky Slade, one by Noah Kane. Like, Penn State just wanted to throw the football, or they felt they had to throw the football, and credit to Buffalo for that, because they were also winning in the trenches on that side of the ball. And then on defense, like, Penn State's defense, it goes as its defensive line goes, and for how good that much of the linebacking core is, for how good much of the secondary is, the the calculus changes considerably when Penn State's defensive line is not winning in the trenches. And I think they got a bit of a necessary wake-up call that they're going to have to win their one-on-one battles every single day, every single possession for the rest of the season if this defense wants to live up to its potential because Buffalo's run... Offensive line did a good job getting a push and giving room for their running backs to go. Their running backs did a good job seeing space and attacking it. And then, like we've mentioned, their quarterback 
he had just enough of Appalachian State's quarterback from last year in terms of some of the throws he was making and the fact that he just stayed cool in such a hostile environment that I was having some pretty nervous flashbacks, I'm not going to lie. So I think all of those things just kind of came together. It was the perfect mix of Penn State just not being up to it and Buffalo playing with their heads on fire, being like, having a picture-perfect game plan. Just that is what you need to do when you are a less talented team going up against a more talented team. And they're a well-coached football team, as we've mentioned countless times. They had all the confidence in the world, and it worked out for them. I, I think you would agree with me, Matt, that I don't. I mean, Buffalo deserved to go into the locker room up. They were for the first thirty minutes of that football game. They were the better team. And oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Like it's it, it. It was kind of jarring to watch, and. Whatever James Franklin said in the second half, whatever adjustments Ricky Ronnie and co, Brent Pry and co made in the locker room, they completely worked. And to me, Matt, I think the big thing on offense in the second half was that they started getting some more of those big plays. And then I think the defense, I think it, the fact that John Reed got that pick six it gave them a little bit more swagger than they had at any time during the first half. And when that Penn State defense gets co- gets its swagger back and when the offense is cooking and relying and converting big plays to the extent that they were, I think we got a glimpse of what this team is capable of doing. Yeah, and I think that the timing of Reed's pick six was so crucial. It was right after Penn State had, a, had something going on offense before the Ricky Slade fumble um, on the first drive. And it was kind of one of those, oh, you know, what else can go wrong sort of moments. And almost instantaneously, Reed jumps the route, um, you know, makes the pick and goes in for six. And the crowd gets into it. The, the sideline gets into it. Um, James Franklin alluded to it after the game, saying that it wasn't even just that they got the pick six. It was who got it. You know, John Reed's a guy that, um, but you know, in Franklin's words, the entire program just respects the hell out of. Um, both from a way he goes at his, about his business, has come back from the, the knee injury a couple years ago. Um, so the, the guy that made the play was almost as important as that the play was made in and of itself. And I think that really, you know, obviously gave him the lead for the first time since the seven nothing, um, since the touchdown. But it was the first thing that had gone right in in a half of football, pretty much. And to it got the defense going and they came right back out there and I think they got a three and out or they certainly forced a punt relatively quickly. And it was really kind of from that point on, you know, no one looked back. They hit the big play to Pat Fryermuth shortly after um, to go out 21, 13 and uh, or 21, 10. And, and that was pretty much it. So um, I, I, you and I joke about momentum all the time and you know how it's not necessarily the kind of thing that you quantify or, or really is a thing, but to watch the way that game swung on that play, it makes it hard not to believe that momentum has a place in, in a game like that where it's um, you know you get a crowd into it under the lights um, and, and a team that had quite frankly been struggling. You, you need that spark, and that's that's probably more than anything what it was was that spark as opposed to the momentum. Um, and I think you know I, I alluded to it a, a little bit earlier that they made some adjustments when it came to gap control and things like that that 
I know you and I don't necessarily understand to, to a, a very intense degree, but similar to what they did against Pitt last year where they, they made some corrections as far as how they were attacking the running game. And that got Buffalo in more obvious passing situations where they were a little bit more capable to defend it. And regardless of, of who you're going up against, when you're in second and third and short, it's really hard when you don't know with any real certainty whether the team's going to run or pass. You're almost you know, playing a guessing game from a defensive coordinator standpoint and forcing Buffalo into more obvious passing situations, second and third and long really played right into Penn state's defense defense's advantage. So um, on the offensive side, I think it was shades of 2016 where they weren't going to be able to grind out drives. It was just the way Buffalo was attacking them. They were, they were going to force Penn state to hit that big play. And, and they really did. It was, you know, Pat Fryermuth, and then uh, I'm not gonna remember every single one, but Fryermuth had the the long touchdown. Um, they hit Dodson for the one late. Fryermuth had the one on fourth down. It was just it was chunk plays, um, which explains the about two to one, maybe even more kind of possession advantage. Yep. Um, and if I may interject here, because this is something that I think is really important for to, to kind of contextualize what Penn State did in the second half. It's first drive ended with that fumble, like you mentioned. It's last drive, uh, just taking a knee, uh, to, just to call it. In between them, there was the pick six for twenty, pick six for uh, however many yards by John Reed, and then the offensive drives. Everyone, but one, ended in points. The one that didn't end in points was a three-play drive, whatever. Each of those other drives, everyone had at least one twenty-yard play. First touchdown drive was one play, Sean Clifford and Pat Fryermuth for 23 yards. The next drive ends in a touchdown run, I believe, by Noah Kane. Sean Clifford had a 58-yard run, run on that. Drive after that, Penn State uh, comes to an end, Sean Clifford to Pat Fryermuth for 28 yards. Drive after that has K, uh, Clifford finding KJ Hamler for 45 yards, and that drive ends in a field goal. And then the final offensive, uh, where you know they were really pouring it on, final offensive drive was Sean Clifford to Sean uh, Jahan Dotson uh, for I was going to call him Deshaun Jackson. Uh, Jahan Dotson for 56 yards ends in a touchdown. So it's been a thing for years, and we know this is something that they quantify within the program, and they believe that if they are able to win the big play battle, they're going to really help their chances of winning, Matt. In the second half, as opposed to the first half, where they just could not get anything going, they were able to lean on those big plays, and as a result, a five-second drive, a 43-second drive, a minute 35-second drive, a minute 54-second drive, a minute 28-second drive, and a minute 55-second drive. Minute yeah, and I think... Sorry. And and to go back to my 2016 point, um, you know we, we talk about Bill C and and SP plus a lot on here and on the site, but that 2016 team, and I don't remember the exact numbers, but they were for all intents and purposes horribly inefficient when it came to um, you know uh, success rate on standard on first, second, and third down. But where they made up for it was those huge, huge explosive plays. You know, the downfield passing from McSorley to Godwin and Gasicki and um, I think Hamilton and whoever else was on that roster. Saquon um, Barkley doing Saquon Barkley stuff. Of course, you know, that's kind of the unstated premise, I think. Hopefully, but <laughs> but 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 to, to my point, I'm not saying that that's how they're going to survive this year because that's a really hard way to to have success consistently. Uh, explosive plays are not what you build an offense around. 
But if you prove you can hit them like that, when you are struggling with your success rate on on you know gaining the appropriate yardage on first, second, and third down, then that's how you make up for it. And I think that's what what Penn State was able to take advantage of. Like I said earlier, I think Buffalo was really trying to force them to if you're going to beat us, that's how you're going to beat us. And in the Penn State's credit, they did. And I think what that proves going forward to get a little bit ahead of ourselves here is you can't sell out and make Sean Clifford beat you because he's, he shows he can, he threw, threw four touchdown passes and they were all, um, you know, the fire or the second fire one was, you know, a, a little dump off in a long run, but every other one was, you know, a 20 plus yard throw. And he's proven now both in, in mop up time last year and through two games this year that he is really good at throwing the ball downfield. And I think that's going to, you would expect to open things up going forward. So, as far as what changed the second half on offense, it was it was taking what they were given and, and committing to to throwing the ball downfield, to stretching the defense. And if you're going to force us to to look downfield because you're putting eight or nine guys in the box, we're gonna gonna take those shots. It's like a good boxer. I mean, you when when you're a boxer, when you're a knockout artist, when you just need that one punch in order to knock out your opponent and you're basically setting up the entire game for that one punt or you're setting up the entire fight to get to the point where you can throw that one punch it is going to be a little bit ugly getting there but once you start swinging away that's when you're able to do their most damage and I think we saw exactly that at a Penn State on Saturday night Um, I think you're probably like me and you'd still like uh, to see you wouldn't hate it if they were able to establish a bit more of a running game. Again, Journey Brown, six carries. Ricky Slade, three carries. Ricky Slade, I am very interested. And I want to know, just real quick, your thoughts on him, Matt. I'm really interested in him because I think when you are the second or third running back, you can maybe afford to have fumble problems a little bit more, but that guy is going, he was came into this season as RB1, and we have enough evidence to say that sometimes protecting the football can be an issue with him. Purely speculative by myself and by Matt, whatever we're going to say here, but I'm, I do wonder if one of these other talented young backs are maybe able to take some carries away from him just because of his what appears to be an issue putting the ball on the deck. Do you agree with that? I think I'll, I'll take a little bit different way of answering the question. I think we're getting to the same point, but when you've got three guys behind you in journey Brown, Nolan Kane and Devin Ford, who are all talented in their own right, then any sort of advantage you give those guys over you, whether it's ball security or pass protection or catching the ball out of the backfield, whatever it might be, um, then you're certainly at risk of losing carries. And I think, um, I don't know the exact numbers. I think Slade had the 50 or so carries last year. He had the, the fumble or um, a couple of them. He had one, no one in the pit game, maybe one or two later in the year. Correct me if I'm wrong, Bill. I don't think he's had one in the first two games. So this is the first one we've seen in a while. Um, but it, the timing of it was just so unfortunate where they were really moving the ball well down the field and were in Buffalo territory and seemed to have something going. And then, just you could feel the air get sucked out of the stadium on TV when it happened. Um, so I'm, I'm going to be curious. I think because of the depth they've got behind them, 
you wonder whether how quickly they go back to them and, and show them they've got the confidence or if it's one of those, hey, we're going to you know let these other guys have the more important carries early on and work you in you know at at less important points or less crucial points in games until we are more comfortable that you can hang on to the ball. It's, yeah. it's, it's certainly something that's be, that is, has followed him for, you know, a season and a couple games it's, now. It's getting to the point where whether it's fair or not, I, you know, I, I, I you and I are both in the Penn state Twitter verse. Like it's starting to seem again, whether unfair or not, like it's a thing. And sometimes when something because it becomes a thing, even if it shouldn't become a thing, that can be hard to overcome. But anyway, I'm interested in that. And I want to see how much uh, how much Penn State relies on him and the running backs as a whole against Pitt and against Maryland. Because I don't know if running the ball 24 times for 78 yards with 11 of those carries and 51 of those yards coming via Sean Clifford is is exactly what you want to be doing heading forward. Um, and I, I'm going to say that just from a, again, going back to the 2016 analogy I've used a couple of times here, that's not atypical of some of those games that year. And even in 2017, even with Barkley in the backfield where they've struggled to get anything going on the ground, um, unless Barkley could hit a big play or McSorley could hit a big play. If you go back and look at some of those box scores from those two years, there's games where, those numbers are not terribly different than what you saw from, you know, a team, two teams that won 11 games in each of those years. So um, it's it's hard to win that way. Like I said, you know, you rely more on the big play um, and you're putting a lot on a first time starting quarterback, but um, I'm, I'm going to be really curious to kind of segue to the next topic here, how yep. Penn state's opposition deals with this going forward, because, you wonder whether they say, well, that's Buffalo. Our secondary is better, so we can we can afford to sell out like they did. Or if this does open up some things up front where you do get one or two of those guys out of the box, one or two fewer guys to have to block and account for up front. Yeah, I, I, I think I'd agree with that. It, it, it seems plausible to me, as I'm sure it seems plausible to you, as I'm sure it seems plausible to just about anyone who knows anything about college football, that Buffaloes went into this game saying Penn State has a bunch of running backs, but they also have a quarterback who is in his second career start. Let's make him win this football game, and credit to him, he won this football game. We'll, we'll see if that is what's going on or if there is a legitimate concern with Penn State's rushing attack. Uh, but I think Pitt will be a better... Uh, Pitt will be probably a much better mile marker than Buffalo, even if Buffalo did do some good stuff. And of course, uh, the last person I think we need to shout out, as we will every single week as long as he does this stuff, is uh, Jordan Stout, who he, he rules, man. Like, how, again, how, I'm going to probably say this on every recap pod as long as he is in a Penn State shirt. How on earth he did not get a scholarship from Virginia Tech is just so beyond me. Like, uh, having he, he's a weapon. He's a weapon. And when Penn State's defense, uh, it, you, when Penn State's defense knows they have a little bit more space behind them, as opposed to having to stop teams from the 40 yard line, they have to stop them from the 25 yard line each and every time. I think that's a big thing. That's something that's going to help this team going forward. The last thing I wanted to ask you, Matt. 
about this game. I just as I'm looking through the box score and I'm looking through the names, the one concern, the one really big concern that I have with Penn State's defense, it involves Jan Johnson, who I think we saw on a few occasions, and I, I'll feel free to yell at me if this is not the case. I think we saw Buffalo kind of targeting him in the passing game a bit. Uh, there were a few times where Buffalo just sent one or two times that I, at least one that I remember completely, where Buffalo sent someone right up the seam and their quarterback was just able to drop a ball in over Johnson in front of the safeties. And I don't know if this is as big of a concern as to, as it just kind of comes off to me as it could be as Penn State gets to play more athletic and uh, more athletic football teams, better quarterbacks, better receivers, all that. Is that something that piques your interest a little bit as we're kind of heading into the, as we're getting out of the group of five portion of the schedule and we start moving into the power five portion of the schedule? Yeah, I, I think it does. Um, I think we we know what Jan Johnson is at this point. He's really solid against the run, really smart player, but he's athletically limited. Um, you know, the the one play that sticks out, two, there's two plays that stick out. One was the one, I think you're talking about the same one where they just ran the, the tight end right up the seam. Um, and got him between behind Johnson in front of the safeties. And I think it was Brisker was in at that point. And I can't remember who the other safety back there was. But that's that's how you can attack him. He's just not the most athletically gifted player. Um, and when you're lining up in the middle of the defense, that's if you have a quarterback who's capable of making that throw, and it's not an easy throw, there's a little bit of touch involved to, to get it up over the linebacker and in front of the safety and drop it in there. But you're going to face a bunch of quarterbacks, I think, going forward who have that that capability. Um, I think the bigger question when it comes to Johnson is, what are the other options? And Ellis Brooks is the obvious one. Jesse Lukita is another one um, who both can play in the middle. But I think there's, and, and maybe this is is a, a a limitation of the of Brent Pry coaching the linebackers. Um, I don't know if that's the right word of limitation, but I, I, I know, and I, I hope our listeners know what you mean. He, he's just a little bit closer to those guys than he would be anybody else. He wants that. I, he knows that Jan Johnson is an extension of him in a way that an underclassman can't be. And I think there's just a level of of trust and maybe a little bit of caution when it comes to trusting one of those other guys who might be a little bit more athletically gifted but maybe doesn't have the 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 instincts of Johnson and that's that's kind of a hard differentiation to make on some level because you know some maybe someone who's more athletically inclined can make up for the lack of instincts I think you and I would both agree that Johnson is an incredibly instinctual linebacker you know he finds himself in the right he, he finds himself making the right read but just not able to necessarily make the play that he that you would make based off that read because he can't get there in time. But does a Brooks or a Lukita or one of the freshmen like Brandon Smith or Lance Dixon, um, or even Charlie Catcher, who we've seen getting some time. Or I, I would also like to potentially throw out the weighing that against, say, using another cornerback and doing more of a four-two-five type thing. Yeah, and I think that's going to be interesting going into you know, Maryland, for example, here in a couple of weeks to get a little bit ahead of ourselves a team that is going to spread the ball out more, do you need three linebackers out there? Can you get away with 
Parsons and Brown or Parsons and Smith or Parsons and Lukita. I think I think we can all both agree that Micah Parsons is going to be on the field ninety percent of the time um, or more in in games when they're when the game is is in doubt. But um, I don't know if concerns the right word, but I think it's certainly something to keep your eye on as the the level of of competition goes up. You know, in the coming weeks. Yeah, and uh, I'm glad that we put that out there just because I, I think that was a good thing to touch on, especially because the next thing we're going to discuss, and this is, you know, you kind of, you alluded to the fact we're going to discuss this right now, is this, what are kind of the lessons that we can take, I think from these first two games, but mostly from Buffalo, as Penn State heads into this game against Pitt, and as it gets into the teeth of its schedule, which is, uh, the start of the Big Ten slate, which all of a sudden, I would argue, looks a whole hell of a lot more horrifying thanks to how good Maryland has looked to start the year. Uh, the fact that Iowa looks like a very solid football team still, and even though Michigan nearly got armied, they're still a talented football team. So as you look through all this stuff, Matt, and you kind of try and determine in which direction the wind is blowing at this point. What do you think the big lessons are that we could take away? I think the the biggest one is we kind of hit on, hit on it right off the top is you got to be ready to play from from the first snap. Um, you're you're going to be more talented than a lot of teams you're facing, and that's going to be true probably on 10 of the 12 games in the schedule. I can say that pretty comfortably. You're more talented top to bottom. But if a, and this is no disrespect to Buffalo, who we've said a couple of times played a hell of a game, but if Buffalo can come in and dominate you the way they did for 30 minutes because you weren't 100% engaged from the start, then what can you know a team like Maryland or Pitt or Purdue or Iowa or pretty much anyone else on the schedule until you hit Rutgers? What can what can those teams do with you, to you before you you get engaged, get yourself in gear? And are, is it going to be? 10-7 when it happens, or is it going to be 24-3 when that happens and you've dug yourself a hole you can't get out of regardless of how well you play? Um, so that, that's the obvious answer. I think the the, the less obvious answers, I think, are um, Penn State probably is going to have to limit the rotation going forward. And I, I guess that's probably the plan and has been the plan for a while is these first two games were going to be an opportunity to get guys in, get them experience, and kind of see what they have and then adjust from there. So I, I'm not too worried about that going forward. I think you'll see fewer guys getting snaps, especially early in games. Um, but along those same lines is be ready to make those adjustments sooner. Um, it's it's dangerous to have to wait to halftime to adjust the way you're playing gaps in the run game or adjust the way you're going to attack a defense on offense. Um, so just being more more engaged from the start and, and quicker to adjust are, are kind of the overarching things. And, and then there's the smaller things like getting the running game involved, getting better and better in the read option, um, you know, getting Pat Fryermuth involved earlier. Um, you know, we've we've gone almost two podcast or two weeks now without really mentioning Justin Shorter, who has looked good but it hasn't been the game breaker quite yet. Um, but you wonder if that's coming with the way that Dotson and Hamler and Fryermuth have really emerged in the first two weeks. Um, but there's a lot of talent on offense, and it it still feels to me like 
they've just scratched the surface of what's there. You saw, you saw the explosiveness come back on Saturday. I think what I am hoping to see, you know, against Pitt and going forward now is kind of more of a combination of those two is getting, getting the running game involved and be able to, to turn out those, those 10, 12 play drives um, and then being able to hit that big play when needed as well, depending on, on what you're facing. The, to me, obviously, yes, not get getting into your rhythm a little bit sooner is kind of the big overarching thing. Again, that we learned against Buffalo, you cannot play games that are being dictated by your opponent. That is not something the top 15, that top 15 teams, the teams that want to win a conference as good as this big 10. It's just not stuff they do. That's number one with a bullet for me. Number two, like you, again, like you mentioned the rotation thing, I'm not as concerned about it. Cause like you said, I would be stunned if Penn state's plan, uh, wasn't, to get as many guys on the field in somewhat high leverage situations as possible right now and then worry about the rest later. I mean, we're not going to see, you know, I mean, looking at the Idaho snap counts because we don't have the Buffalo ones yet. Justin Weller gets 17 snaps and Isaac Lutz get 19 snaps and Brenton Strange get 18. We're not going to see stuff like that. They're going to tighten that stuff up. And I think that's good. I, I think so much of this Penn State team, like I mentioned, is about rhythm on both sides of the ball, and it's going to be good to be able to get guys into those rhythms uh, by cutting down on rotations as just one thing. And then, to me, the big thing, uh, I really want to see Penn State establish the running game a little bit more. Um, I want to see Penn State be able to have one of those drives where they say, okay, we're going to take... We're going to take four or five minutes. We're going to take six minutes. We're going to really let the clock go down a bit because while this isn't a big deal against Buffalo, against Idaho, that's something that if Penn State's up 21-17 in Columbus this year with 4.30 left on the clock, they need to be able to play a brand of football in which they're able to either, one, keep Ohio State from touching it again, or two... Ha, don't let them get the ball with all that much time left. I'm looking through the uh, drive charts from both games this year, and the longest Penn State drive against Buffalo. Uh, one second. Yeah, it was two minutes and 39 seconds, and I ended in a punt. That's not particularly great. Penn State's longest two drives against Idaho came when Will Levis had taken over under center, and you know they were base. It was the final two drives of the game, so 65 to seven to seventy two to seven, and then seventy two to seven to seventy nine to seven. With Sean Clifford in the game, they had a five minute. Uh, what? Wait, no. Levis was when the was in the game for that one too. The one where they went from fifty eight points to sixty five points. They didn't really drive the ball down the field. They weren't terribly meticulous on any of these drives. Uh, they had two drives that were two minutes long, one that was 2.08 in the first half. I want to see Penn State be able to kill a little bit more clock. That's Again, they really rely on big plays, and that is a big aspect of what Penn State football wants to do. They want to generate those big plays. But at the same time, 
I want to be able to see them get into a position where they can they can make the defense work a little bit. I think that's everything that I wanted to say uh, about these first couple of Aside from, and I really just cannot mention enough, the fact that Penn State being down 10-7 to 7 at halftime and then covering 31.5 is nothing short of ridiculous. Like, Matt, you have seen firsthand that I don't think anything has brought me this much joy in a long time, but it is objectively <laughs> funny that they were able to do that. Yeah, like I said, told you right before we, we started recording, is when they when Kane went in to put them up 28-13 with, what, six or seven minutes left in the third quarter, I kind of filed that away in the back of my head. Like, you know what? If, if they keep going like this and they keep the starters in and they don't you know take their foot off the gas, they could could conceivably cover this. I didn't think it would happen. And then when it got to 35-13, you actually asked me, you wanted to make sure you had the numbers right, that, yeah, hey, they or 38-13, I should say. Like They could do this. This is like a touchdown away. And and sure enough, it, it happened. It was, um, it was, given how poorly they looked for 30 minutes to come out and just absolutely dominate on the scoreboard the way they did for the final 30 minutes um, was just, was certainly very impressive and, he, and hilarious. Yeah, I, I'm, I can't find it. Uh, I wasn't able to find it at the time you were speaking, but it reminded me a lot of um, the Penn State uh, Illinois game last year where the line was something ridiculous. Uh, wait, uh, Penn State I was, want to say it was like 27. It was 27 and a half. And Penn St- at one point in the third quarter, uh, Illinois scored a touchdown to go ahead. And this, there, were, there were a pretty decent number of similarities between the game we just saw and that Illinois game where Penn State looked a little bit sluggish, looked a little bit off the previous week. Well, previous two weeks, 51-6 to six over Pitt, then 63-10 to 10 over Kent State, just really thrashed a pair of teams, and it looked like they may, might have gotten a bit caught up in how good they were. And then Illinois gets the football. They go up 24-21 to 21 at the start of the second quarter. Penn State, again, 27.5-point favorite. That shouldn't that like that should have been it. Touchdown, 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 touchdown on their next six drives, and they ended up covering that and they win 63 to 24. So James Franklin, I do not gamble. Uh yet New York is still getting that technology, but thank you. Thank you very much for what you do uh for Penn State and prospective gamblers everywhere. Uh last thing I wanted to mention, uh per ESPN's uh, playoff predictor. Uh, Penn State and Ohio State are actually tied at 20% right now for the best odds to make the college football playoff out of the Big Ten. Uh, Clemson, Alabama, and LSU are all above 50%. Clemson and Alabama, of course, are as clo- pretty safe in a pretty good position at this point. Notre Dame is at 33%. Georgia is at 30%. Oklahoma is at 24%. Then Penn State and Ohio State and Wisconsin at 14%. So, as long as they can kind of keep things on track uh, and they're able to take down the Michigan team that wasn't particularly interesting this past week and eventually march into Columbus and win what would be a really tough game, things are starting to shape up to be pretty good for this Penn State team, as long as they can iron out some of the wrinkles that we've mentioned over the past couple of days. 
this, I think that's everything I want to talk about, Matt. Is there any final thing you would want to discuss? No, I, I want to get on to making fun of Michigan. Okay, so what I think we do here is I'm going to list off a collection of Big Ten games that I think you and I don't care about. Minnesota being beating Fresno State 38-35, to I don't think you and I care about that. Uh, there was a great catch in overtime for Minnesota, or just the setup overtime by Minnesota. That's that's my thought. Indiana trounced Eastern Illinois. Don't care. I didn't know they played. Illinois beat UConn, which is just a funny thing to say, but for the most part, like UConn, please get rid of football immediately, but otherwise I don't really care. Uh, UConn, I was actually up 13 nothing in that game at one point, and, and yeah, and then, it, then it went sideways very quickly. UConn football. Randy Edsel uh, got a pair of bonuses. I, I'm sorry, we're going to talk a second about this. Uh, UConn coach Randy Edsel picked up at least $6,000 in bonuses in the Huskies' loss to Illinois yesterday, a uh, tweet by Steve Berkowitz. Uh, he gets 2000 apiece from UConn scoring first, forcing at least two turnovers and having better red zone scoring efficiency. He's up to 32000 in bonuses for the season. So Randy Edsel, good job. Uh, Iowa trounce Rutgers, whatever. Uh Sparty beat Western and Wisconsin beat up on Central Michigan. I don't. I don't care. Do you? Ca- I, I mean, we care that Rutgers lost. That's funny. But otherwise, do you care? Oh, last thing. Michigan State needs to burn those uniforms. Oh my God! We, I, we were sitting in the basement <laughs> watching this on Saturday. It was on on TV uh, two of three uh, on Saturday night, and they came on and it was just like, like glow in the dark. I, I will say that um, given how dysfunctional Michigan State has looked on offense. That was actually a pretty impressive performance to to score five offensive touchdowns. I think in their previous two or three games they had three combined. So so good on Sparty for for remembering how to offense in football. Into the games that are probably that are a bit more interesting, um Purdue 42-24 over Vanderbilt. Uh, I think that's probably interesting just because we kind of saw Rondale Moore unleashed. We saw Elijah Sindelar swing it around a little bit. Allowing 24 points to Vanderbilt is never something you want, but compared to where they were last week, I think that I'm a, I'm a little bit more curious about when Purdue and Penn State play in a couple of weeks, man. Yeah, I think Purdue, for all intents and purposes, should be 2-0. and um, The way they, they blew that Nevada game last week is just, um, if they're sitting at five wins in you know mid-November, they're going to look back and just kick themselves for that, but... Um, kind of continuing their theme from a year ago where they were really good at home and not really good at not, they were not really good away from home. Easy for me to say. Um, so I, you know, Rondale Moore is great. Sindelar is kind of getting his feet under him, but that Purdue defense, um, certainly looks susceptible. And, um, until they prove they can consistently play well away from Ross eight stadium, I'm going to feel pretty confident about that, that game in early October. I don't think we have a lot to say uh, from a Penn State fan perspective about Colorado and Nebraska other than one, that was one hell of a football game, and two, it's all, it's, it was very funny watching uh, the Nebraska team that was preordained to make the Scott Frost jump in year two just completely crap the bed. Oh my, was it 17 nothing in that game? It was one of, the, one of those games where it was totally in control well into the fourth quarter, it really felt like, and then they just forgot to do everything, especially on defense. They just fell apart, and um, you know, full credit to Colorado for for getting back into that game. But oh, that that was um, 
almost expected to some degree, I think, by by you and I, Bill, because I don't think either of us really bought into the the Nebraska hype. But to see them lose that way is just even more troubling, to, for lack of a better word. And again, very funny. Uh, less funny is Ohio State looked real good against Cincinnati. You and I were uh, both talking about how this was going to be an interesting test for Ohio State for a myriad of reasons. Justin Fields looked great, and J.K. Dobbins especially. He he looked like the guy who during his freshman year everyone thought had the potential to be a Heisman contender. Yeah, I, I watched this one in, in the Michigan game pretty closely, uh, both noon starts, and I think I can't remember if I mentioned on the podcast last week, but that I felt like Ohio State was going to win by 30 or 3. It was going to be very little in between, and we, we got the former. And Cincinnati is a, a solid team. They're a well-coached team. Um, that that went early uh, week one win over UCLA, looking worse and worse as Chip Kelly um, just completely f- it mails it in almost at UCLA. Uh, I can't remember who got them on Saturday, but they're sitting at 0-2 now. Um, but Ohio State looked really, really good. Um not not just the the I think it was forty two nothing, but um, they looked really good on defense. Chase Young is just a monster. He's um, so good. F- former future Nittany Lion Tyreek Smith got his first action of the year after missing their first game due to a little injury. He looked really good. Just um, I don't know where this goes. I I think in the same vein as as Penn State, I want to see how they look as the competition level ramps up. Um, but this was certainly a, a huge test pass for them against a, a pretty good Cincinnati team and uh, pass with flying colors at that. Yes. And to answer your question, uh, UCLA lost to San Diego state. They scored 14 points. Uh, let's see. I, I think there are two games that we should probably talk about. I don't want to go too terribly in depth, but I think they're worth our time to get a little bit more than the passing mentions that we've more or less given every other game. Uh, We'll get to the funny one in a sec, but the first one, Maryland looks really, really good through two games. Uh, Obviously, they just throttled Howard, uh, as they probably should have, but then a ranked Syracuse team walking in uh, to College Park. Maryland put a hurting on them, and right now the Terps are sitting at 21st. I don't know if Maryland is good to the level that you would think a team that has scored a billion points in their first two games are. But I think we can probably say with some amount of confidence that this is, at the bare minimum, a very solid football team. Yeah, this is, at least on the surface, probably the most, the best Maryland team that Penn State will have played in the Big Ten. You know, it's it's two games in, and they, they molly-whopped uh, some guy named Howard in the first game and then uh, beat up on a, a overrated Syracuse team that um, felt like they were ranked because someone needed to be ranked and they won 10 games a year ago. And sure, let's pick them out of the ACC. But Josh Jackson looks really good. And if they can keep him healthy, which has quite honestly been a, the arguably the biggest problem for Maryland the last couple of years is injury at the quarterback position. Um, they have a lot of skill talent, skill position talent. Um, Urban Meyer alluded to it on the, uh, the halftime show during the Penn State game last night that they have 
as much offensive skill position talent as just about anyone in the Big Ten. You have Anthony McFarland is the name that we all know, but there's a lot of other guys that will that I will learn their names between now and, and the game in a couple weeks. Um, but the issue has been quarterback play, and they certainly have it through two games with Josh Jackson. Um, I don't know how good that defense is. Um, I'm not sure what the final score was, you know, as far as what Syracuse got on the board yesterday. But um, I think that's that's where they're susceptible from a, from a quick view. But that game is not the uh, the pushover that we all thought it was going in. Um, curious to see how Maryland handles getting all the attention they're going to get this week. They have Temple in Philadelphia on Saturday. So um, there's a part of me that wants to see them lose and get and crash back to earth. But I'd, I'd like to see both Penn State and, and Maryland 3-0 in that game. It'd be a, a chance for a road-ranked win for James Franklin, which is one of the dumb things that people complain about. Um, and they'll beat. And if they beat them, then it would be, well, they weren't that good, so it doesn't count anyway. But um, from a, a big-picture standpoint, I, I kind of like it. Getting, another, uh, getting a road test um, before they go to Iowa in October um, will, be, will only be a positive for Penn State. Yeah, I, I'm glad you mentioned Jackson because he kind of seems like the, the the person who brings it all together. I think that when you play Maryland and you're able to sell out against the running game, it's really easy to slow them down. And even though they have a pretty nice complement of uh, running uh, options out of the backfield – you're still able to kind of muck them up a little bit. And Jackson, even though I don't know if he's the kind of guy who is going to ever do like air raidy type stuff, he's going to be able to complete passes. He's going to be able to find guys and get the ball to them. And that's something that it, it's curious to me after what happened this past week where we saw Penn State struggle to get to the quarterback. Jackson's going to get the ball out. Jackson's going to spread the ball around. And I think that's something that could, that could potentially be very curious for Penn State. Now, again, we don't know exactly how good Syracuse is. I, like you mentioned, Matt, maybe the fact that they only beat Liberty 24 to nothing while their coach was pent up on a hospital bed in a box somewhere in, this, in a weird attempt to get Liberty good publicity for the first time ever. Maybe that's something that we should have taken as a little bit of a sign that Syracuse is going to fall back to earth, especially with a new quarterback in. But we'll see. The Temple game is going to be interesting. I don't know uh, exactly how good Temple is either. It is very possible that Maryland is going to kick the hell out of them again. And then it's a 3-0 Penn State team against a 3-0 Maryland team. And I would not be surprised if Maryland gives Penn State a little bit more than what I, I still think Penn State probably wins that game, but Maryland looks like it has the juice right now. Last game, uh, we're going to talk about a team that decided <laughs> who doesn't have the juice. Uh, that would be uh, hail to uh, the victors, uh, the team, the team, the team, uh, the team, the team, the team nearly lost to Army. Um, every single thing that we expected to happen in this game happened, uh, except for the fact that I don't think any of us thought Michigan was going to need double overtime to hold off army. Uh, Matt, I think it's very easy to make fun of Michigan. So let's do that. I, I don't even know where to start. Um, and, and it's, it's very easy for me to just, just drag on them because I live 20 minutes from campus, but I actually didn't think this game was going to be close. Cause I, it, it felt like one of those, Oh, 
everyone's talking about it's going to be a close game, maybe an upset, and Michigan comes out and wins by 20. Well, that that did not happen. And I think what really stood out to me most was that Army was the better team for long stretches of that game. And really, yep. if they, you can make an argument that if they don't have that false start penalty on the one-yard line right before the interception because they were throwing for some unknown reason, that Army probably wins that game. They go up 20, would that make it 21-14, I think? Um, and that that was kind of the spark that got Michigan going. But it's it, I'm not going to get too much in the defense because Army's offense is just so tricked up that it's it's not worth trying to, to make any definite uh, proclamations about it. But the two things that stood out to me were, one, when the game got tight, Michigan all of a sudden went to man ball out of the shotgun. Yep. And for the first time, it was what, what a lot of us were expecting, I think, that when things got tight, that either Jim Harbaugh was going to take over the way they were running the offense or was going to make it known the way he wanted the offense run because they stopped throwing the ball. There was a lot of um, you know power out of the, the shotgun, you know, pulling a guard around or whoever and follow him through the whole kind of offense. Um, and they just, they looked totally out of sorts. Now I'm going to, I'm going to qualify this or, or that whole statement with, they look a lot like Penn State did during the first year of Joe Moorhead, where it just took about a month for everyone to get on the same page. But I just wonder, they're they're off this weekend, and then they go to Wisconsin, who has not given up a point yet. And this feels like it could get real sideways real fast in Ann Arbor if, if that Wisconsin game doesn't go well, and they continue to just look completely out of sorts on offense. Yeah, I mean that's that's what is makes that game super interesting to me. Army was able; they didn't control the ball the way that Army is sometimes able to. I mean, they had more of the ball than Michigan did, but it wasn't the overwhelming in one direction or the other thing that we kind of expect out of them. Wisconsin's the kind of team that's going to be able to control the football against Michigan. They're going to win those bat. They're going to be in a position to win those battles up front. Uh, they're going. They have maybe the best running back in the country in Jonathan Taylor. And their defense is much better than Army. Like, they have more talent than Army's defense does. So I'm glad you mentioned the the man ball thing because it was, as someone watching the game, who, let's be clear, I had a rooting interest in this one. It was stunning to me. Absolutely saying, and I think Shea Patterson might have gotten knocked up. Got a, gotten a yeah, knock, he knock, he uh, knock, had, a, up, had an oblique injury. Yes, <laughs> like, that'd be really impressive, and that's a whole other discussion. Yes, but apologies. He for picked that. up a uh, like an oblique injury in the the Middle Tennessee game, supposedly, and Joel Klatt spent unordinate amount of t- an inordinate amount of time harping on how that might impact this, that, or the other thing. But um, I oh, that just because. Yeah, he was injured, but they still just fed and fed and fed Zach Charbonnet, which he is a good young football player. I think he, had, I think he was the first him. running back since Mike Hart to have 33 or 35 carries, whatever he ended up with. 33, 103 he, touchdowns. He didn't have a carry longer than 12 yards, so he was just doing bell cow type stuff the entire game. And I still am stunned 
that they didn't have pad. He threw it 29 times. It felt like he should have thrown it more than that. I mean, there were a few drops. Uh, Nico Collins wasn't able to do much. Tark Black wasn't able to do much. Donovan Peoples-Jones didn't play in this game. They looked completely out of sorts on offense. I, like it, I, I, I still cannot believe in that. I'm, I'm going to bring this full circle a little bit to, to what we talked about with Penn State and Buffalo is Army's going to try and control the clock. Now, what might be the most surprising stat of all from this whole game, it was, was you know, plus or minus a couple minutes, I think, difference um, in time of possession. But when a team controls the ball and is just going to run, run, run like Army does, if you're not capitalizing on your efficient drive the ball down the field offense, you have to hit those big plays. And Michigan just got down, got in a close game, and totally got away from trying to stretch the field at all against a team where you have a huge athletic advantage. And it was just um, – and then when it comes to the run game, I think Army became very aware that Shea Patterson was not a threat to keep the ball. And this is where you wonder whether there's some level of gamesmanship or, or whatever from Harbaugh after the game. But he said that when asked about how little Patterson kept the ball, that – Either they, they were designed runs to the running back or the read wasn't there. And I just, I have a hard time believing that he was missing the read that much because of how much they were attacking the ball carrier or the running back as opposed to the quarterback. But I keep say, coming back to the same thing, but they just looked like they, they didn't know what their identity was on offense. They didn't know what they were trying to do. They couldn't run the ball in short yardage consistently. Um, this is, it's just in a five alarm fire, but it's like a two and a half right now with the with the potential to get really out of control here in, in about two weeks when they go to Madison. Yeah, having that Wisconsin game when they do, my eyebrows are raised on it. Having that extra week to prepare, like you mentioned, so much of the transition that they're making from hardcore man ball to spread them out, try and get your athletes into one-on-ones, all that. It does take time, and I do wonder if that extra week of prep is going to help them a lot in that endeavor. But I'm going to read to you what Michigan's schedule is. I was just looking at that. After this bye, at Wisconsin, Rutgers, Iowa, at Illinois, 14th ranked Wisconsin, 19th ranked Iowa. I think that's important. Starting on October 19th, at number 13 Penn State, hosting number 7 Notre Dame, at number 21 Maryland, Hosting number, uh, they have a buy, and then hosting number 18, uh, Michigan State, traveling to Indiana versus number six, Ohio State. It is very possible that Michigan, I don't want to say turns things around because, you know, they are 2 0, for better or worse, they are 2 0 in the season. It suddenly, to me, looks a lot, the scenario where this season goes, I don't want to say completely sideways, but. With Penn State breaking in a new quarterback, with Ohio State breaking in a new quarterback, and in the middle of a co- you know first year of a new coach, this was supposed to be the year where Michigan is at a point where they win the Big Ten, where they're able to take advantage of their surroundings and what they have and win this conference. It's suddenly really easy, Matt, in my eyes, for this Mar- for this Michigan team to end this season with two or three or four losses, and all of a sudden 
it is just what the hell do they do in Ann Arbor? Well, and it and half those games that you listed, maybe more than half, it's not a huge stretch to say Michigan can lose those games. Now they're gonna, not going to lose all of them, I don't think. But they could lose at Wisconsin. They could lose at home against Iowa. They could certainly lose at Penn State. They could lose at home to Notre Dame. As it looks right now, they could lose at Maryland. They could certainly lose at home to Michigan State. And until they prove otherwise, they're going to lose to Ohio State. So that's what – did I just name six games there of the final ten? Um, if they win half of those, all of a sudden they're 9-3 and three again. And those three losses – well, I guess there's Notre Dame in there. So potentially three of those losses could be in the league – and they're looking at a third or fourth place finish in the Big Ten East once again. And and like you said, where do they go from there? Because as you and I have talked about a bunch of times, if Jim Harbaugh isn't the one to get you back on top of the Big Ten and back um, at the top of the, the national conscience for, for success on the football field, then, then who is it? You, there's no obvious guy you go to if he can't do it. wow, I just had a major Skype error. But I agree with everything that Matt just said because he and I talk about that a lot. Uh, I think that's it for Michigan. I We can spend uh, the rest of this podcast, we can spend another hour this podcast just making fun of them, but I think it's better to spread that out over the next 10 weeks or so. so let's let's just, we do. just to, to put a bow on that, Michigan was a freshman arms or a service academy kicker yep. away from... Yep losing at home to army and he was real close on that kick like if if they're five yards forward who knows what happens but we'll exactly. uh, we will uh hopefully keep you up abreast of everything happening with michigan football as the rest of the season goes along and we will keep you abreast of everything going on with penn state football as the rest of the season goes along thank you uh, as always, for listening to Roar Lions Radio, we appreciate you taking an hour or so out of your day to listen to what we have to say about this stupid football program and just this stupid sport in general. It feels really good, and we do appreciate that. Make sure you're subscribing on all of the various podcast platforms. Leave us a review on iTunes, preferably five stars. Uh, and if it's lower than that, uh, please be nice. Uh, keep buying shirts. Keep reading the site. Keep supporting the site. And... Yeah, thank you as always for listening to this uh, edition of Roar Lions Radio from my co-host Matt DeBear. I'm Bill DeFilippo. Take care, everyone.